The Wiz Kids had won it, Bobby Thompson had done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born, marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, everybody. Welcome on back to Baseball History 101. As always, I'm Patrick DeVault, and I'm joined by Matthew Carter. Hello. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing Mike Piazza. Um, most of y'all know him for his time with the Dodgers and Mets. There's some other teams sprinkled through there. Um, he was born September 4th, 1968. And he's from uh, Norristown, Pennsylvania. Um he grew up in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, and attended Phoenixville Area High School, and he's the second oldest son of, a, of an Italian father named Vince and a Slovak mother named Veronica, with two brothers, Vince Jr., Dan, Tony, and Tom. His father was the son of Italian immigrants from Italy, or Sicily, and his godfather was former MLB manager Tommy Lasorda. Mm-hmm. And um, obviously, being from Pennsylvania, he grew up a Phillies fan, loving Mike Schmidt, and... Uh, I guess his dad was a used car salesman, had a fortune of more than $100 million between that and real estate, and he attempted several times to purchase an MLB franchise. Um, and the Dodgers were managed by his childhood friend, Tommy Lasorda, the godfather of Mike Piazza's youngest brother, Tommy, uh, visited Philadelphia. Piazza visited the Dodger clubhouse and served as a bat boy. That's kind of how his... I guess intro to Tommy Lasorda, the man that later had drafted him, came about. Mm-hmm. But you take over on it, Matt. You know, now his dad's ho- own hopes of playing baseball ended when he was 16. We had to leave school to support his family, which that was a lot more common back then than it is now. But um, as I'm sure we all know. And so he saw that his son had potential in baseball, being Mike. He had a potential in baseball and he encouraged him to build up his arm strength. And at the age of, you know, at the age of five, so we're going like really young, you know, trying to get ready to go at five. I mean, that's most five-year-olds are not thinking about building up their arm strength. <laughs> I mean, were you thinking about that Patrick at five? No, no, I wasn't either. <laughs> so I was just trying know. to play good. So I'd get a pack of baseball cards. Yeah. So his, <laughs> yeah. So his dad was all into helping his son get to the highest level of professional baseball, which would be playing the majors. And this is cool. Even like when Mike was 16, he received personal instruction from, you know, in his backyard bank cage from Ted Williams himself. Ted Williams. <laughs> I mean, talk about connections. And uh Ted was 
impressed. I mean, he praised his talent and advised him not to let anyone change his swing and even autographed uh, Mike's copy of Williams' book, The Science of Hitting. I mean, that's so cool, you know. And, of course, you know, like I said, Vince, his dad was so dedicated to helping Mike get there that they would, you know, Vince threw hundreds of pitches nightly to his son. And, like, you know, even in the wintertime, they'd clear snow if necessary to practice his hitting and you know, after reaching majors, they, they've practiced like even on Christmas Eve. So even like after he reached the majors, he's always focused on his swing and focused on getting better as a hitter, you know. even And things in, like that are what gets you to the Hall of Fame. Exactly. Well, hard work and dedication and um, commitment to honing your craft, you know. And so, you know, Mike graduated from Phoenixville High School in 1986, and then he went to – he. You know, he went to college. He joined the University of Miami Hurricanes, which have a storied baseball program. It's not just football. They're really good at baseball as well, as I'm sure some of our listeners know. Um, But, you know, he didn't get any playing time his freshman year, you know, because, you know, it's hard to break. With a team as good as Miami, it's hard to crack the lineup like that. Yeah, you got to be a stud to play as a freshman just about anywhere. Yeah, and so the next year, he transferred to Miami-Dade Community College, so still staying in Miami, and he played first base for the Miami-Dade team, you know, and in 29 games in 1988, he hit 364 with three home runs and drove in 23 runs, so that was good, you know, I mean, good little, in 29 29 games, you showed some progress, You, you showed some promise there, you know, all that hard work and dedication with your dad in the backyard, you know. And so, same year, 1988, Mike gets drafted because his dad, Vince, asked Tommy Lasorda as a favor to draft Mike. And so Mike got drafted by the Dodgers in the second, second, sorry, 62nd round of the 88 MLB Amateur Draft, and he was the 1,390th player picked out of 1,395 players. He was almost next to – I mean, he was pretty close to being last in the draft. But it didn't matter. You get drafted. It's better than you – know, being drafted is better than going undrafted, you know. Yep. You got to get picked to have a shot. Yep. And Lasorda told – you know, asked Mike, he said, look, you know, forget playing first base like you did at Miami-Dade. You're better off. You have a better chance of reaching the majors if you train – if you try to be a catcher, become a catcher. And so that's what Mike did. You know, he said, okay, I'll, I'll go. If that's going to help me get to the majors, I'll do it. So he focused on catching and he attended a, a special training camp for catchers in the Dominican Republic because of that, thanks to Tommy. And so he went to the Dominican Republic and, you know, did that. And then he went to the minors and he did, he did well. And he became an excellent hitter, especially for a catcher, which we will talk about in this episode. He is, extraordinary like a very offensive great offensively as a catcher for sure as we'll talk about later in this episode and so you know he works hard and then in september 1st 1992 he makes his major league debut with the dodgers against the cubs and his first play appearance he drew a walk and then his next play appearance he doubled to deep center field in his first official bat against mike harkey of the cubs and then on September 12th, he hit his first home run again in his major league career against Steve Reed and San Francisco Giants. He appeared like in 21 games that season. He hit 232. So, I mean, 
you know, you got some playing time as a rookie, you know, as a late season call up. I mean, like I said, at that point in time, nobody's going to expect you to hit like, you know, 300 and go crazy, like, you know, statistically. So I think that's somewhat respectable of a good, you know, late season call up. Would you agree, Patrick? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, but then the next year, this was his breakout year, 93. You know, he won National League Rookie of the Year that year. And he appeared in 149 games. He hit 318 with 35 home runs and drove in 112 RBIs. And he was selected to the All-Star game in the 93 All-Star game, which was his first of 10 consecutive and 12 overall. And, you know, until Jock Peterson passed him in 2015, Piazza's 18 home runs before the All-Star break was a Dodger rookie record. You know, and he just kept doing well, like in 96. You know, fast forward to 96, he hit 336 with 36 home runs and 105 RBIs. And he finished second in National League MVP voting to King Caminiti. Rest in peace. Uh, and then his best season with the Dodgers was the next season, 97 when he hit 362 with 40 home runs and 124 RBIs and with an on-base percentage of 431 and a slugging percentage of 638. And he finished second in the NLVP pony again, this time to Larry Walker. I mean, 362 for a catcher, that's <laughs> that's that's uh, eye-opening for sure, you know. I mean, even catchers today don't hit 362. You know, I mean, like – you could probably compare Piazza to like Joe Maurer in like average wise, like in his prime, because Joe Maurer is a catcher. He could hit for average and he won uh, batting championships. But like, you, you know, yeah, I'd, sorry, say, you I'd say Joe Maurer is kind of the Piazza of our time, you know? Yeah, I would agree because, you know, you just don't see, I mean, at least in today's game, I can't think. I can't think of a catcher up top of my head that, like today in this this season who could hit like 300 like that high up like Piazza or Joe Maurer could, you know. And maybe one day there maybe maybe there is somebody. Maybe we'll see that person again one day as a catcher who could hit that high. But like that's for catchers, that's just extraordinary. You know, it's just like whoa. <laughs> and so 98 was interesting. The next season, 1998. He played on three teams. He was with the Dodgers, and then he was traded to the Florida Marlins in, 19, in on May 15th of 1998. You know, and but the thing is, like, you know, during the 97-98 offseason, the winter of 97-98, Piazza wanted a new contract before being eligible for arbitration. He wanted $105 million for seven years, while the Dodgers offered him six years for $76 million. And then Piazza blasted the team and the media, which, you know, that's never a good thing to do. <laughs> that's that that's the ticket to get you traded if that happens, right? Or released, you know. He blasted the team when his demands were criticized by fans in the media, and he blamed Vince Scully of all people in particular for this. <laughs> don't don't bring Vin to this man. Come on, right? <laughs> and so. You know, on May 15th, Pim and Todd Zeal, that's a name I haven't thought of in a while, went to the Marlins in return for Gary Sheffield, Charles Johnson, and Bobby Bonilla, Manuel Barrios, and Jim Eisenreich. And here's the best part. You know, he got traded to Marlins, but he only played in five games with the Marlins. And he batted 278 
if you look on baseball reference, he had no home runs, but he hit a triple. He had five hits in like uh five hits and eighteen at bats with a triple as his only um uh, extra base hit, and he drove in five runs. I mean, he had a very, very short stint with the Marlins. He was there and, a week. <laughs> yeah, he was there for a week. I mean, that's just not enough time to get to know somebody as a teammate, you know. That'd be a cool jersey to have. That would be. <laughs> and so, so obscure, everybody forgot he even played there. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and so, you know, after a week in five games on May 22nd of 98, he was traded to from, he was traded to the New York Mets for Preston Wilson, Ed Yarnall, and Jeff Goats. Goats. Which, you know, and this is, you know, when he's with the Mets, like in my earliest memory, I think more of Piazza as a Met than I do as a Dodger, you know, like because of just, you know, growing up around that time, I just, he was one of the stars. And, you know, my memory, I think it's been more of a Met than a Dodger, but that's because, you know, just how it is for me anyway. But um, I found one. Oh, you found, a, <laughs> you found a, a Piazza Marlins jersey? Yep. Oh my oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's great. It's on it's on eBay. It's vintage. <laughs> vintage. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure that's worth something. They, well, they want 110 bucks for it. <laughs> oh, that's that's not bad. It's probably steel. Cheaper than you can buy a new one today. Probably. You know, you probably you know, you probably spend like five hundred bucks on a newer Piazza Marlins jersey, you know. <laughs> Oh my gosh. But um yeah, so now he's with the Mets. And you know, Piazza did well for the Mets that year. Uh he just kept being Piazza. Like for in the Mets, he uh, uh in the Mets he played 109 games for the Mets. And he hit during his time with the Mets, he hit 348 with 23 home runs and 76 RBIs. I mean, Piazza was just doing Piazza things with the Mets, but the Mets missed the playoffs because, you know, it's the Mets. <laughs> meet your Mets, the, folks. Yeah, meet the Mets. You know, you're just not going to make the playoffs. And then, you know, but, you know, 99, 2000, they make the playoffs. And in 99, he tied his career highs with 40 home runs and 124 RBIs. And he set the record for most home runs in a season without even without hitting more than one in a game passing a mark that was previously set by baseball hall of famer roger swansby in 1929 so he went the whole 1999 season with no multi-homer games he just hit you know just one home run you know every time every game he hit home run it was just one home run a game you know in those 40 games he hit 40 home runs i mean that's I mean that's that's interesting, you know. I mean that's that's a unique record to have. I would yeah, say. You got a lot of guys that hit that many are having the days where they're seeing beach balls and hit two or three, right? You know, and then you got him. He just it's just won a game. You know, he's like, eh, I'm not doing it. Now, 2000, the 2000 season, the Mets make it to the World Series, and this is they're playing the Yankees, and this is the Subway Series, the first time that. You know, New York's American League and National League teams played each other in World Series since 1956 when the Dod- Brooklyn Dodgers played the Yankees. So this was a big deal. And, of course, I remember this because, you know, this was a big deal. 
I'm sure you remember it too. You know, growing up, that was a big deal of having both the Mets and Yankees in the World Series instead of like an early game or a spring training game, you know. But uh you know, and and of course in this series was interesting. All five games were decided by two runs or fewer, something that had not occurred in the World Series in almost 70 years. So all the games were close. But um, you know, and he and Piazza became known as the monster after Coach John Stearns was caught on tape during the 2000 NLCS. Uh, after Piazza, after Piazza hit saying the monster is out of the cage, so that's not you know I mean that's a new nickname for me. I mean I don't remember. You know, oh, I like him though. I do, yeah, because he was a monster at the plate. You know he could, as we've as we discussed, the guy could hit home runs, he hit for average, he, he can he can beat you with his bat. Now, of course, this is a 2000 World, the 2000 World Series was interesting in that, as I'm sure we all, all of our peers know, that Piazza was in this bizarre incident, <laughs> um, you know, during the World Series. But before, but during interleague, uh, during when the Mets and Yankees played each other in interleague play that year, uh, Yankees pitcher Roger Clemens hit Piazza in the head with a fastball, and he suffered, and Piazza suffered a concussion, was forced to miss the the 2000 MLB All-Star game because of that. And Clemens was widely criticized by the Mets fans for the incident, but Clemens maintained that the pitch was not intentional. And, of course, Clemens and Piazza would go on to face each other in game two of the in the first inning of game two of the World Series. And during the at-bat, Clemens threw a pitch that broke Piazza's bat as he fouled it off, sending the barrel and a sharp edge of the broken bat directly at Clemens on the mound, just as he finished the delivery. Clemens then caught the barrel of the bat of the broken bat and threw it across the first baseline towards the Yankees dugout and just past Piazza, who was running down first. And then, like, you know, it everybody can go on YouTube and see footage of this. Piazza gave Clemens a long stare and slowly walked towards him to confront him. And Clemens asked the umpire for a new ball as if nothing had happened. And uh during the replays, Clemens can be seen shouting, I thought that it was a ball. And asking the umpire for a new ball multiple times as the two pitches cleared and met at the mound. How do you mistake the barrel of a baseball bat for a ball? Is what I want to know. You know, I I don't know. I mean, how? <laughs> That's one of those iconic moments too of our childhood. Like you have this one. Uh, you have Pedro Don Zimmer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's moments like that. They kind of just stand out. Yeah. As far as people feuding each other. Yeah, because, you know, I mean, after after earlier in the season when he got beamed by Clemens, you know, obviously Piazza was not having it. <laughs> I wouldn't be having it either. Even if with accident or not, I wouldn't be having it, you know, after what happened with that. Um, and so words were exchanged between the two t- two players, but no punches were thrown from either team and nobody was ejected. So they just, you know... They just said some stuff and then just went on with the game. So that was nice. That was the best outcome. <laughs> but still, it made for an iconic, interesting moment in Major League Baseball history. You know, just people that people remember even 23 years later, people are going to remember that as like one of the moments, you know, in, in World Series history and Major League Baseball history. But, um, and so, you know, in, two, in later – in 2004, Piazza caught for Clemens 
in the 2004 All-Star game when they were both on the team. Clemens gave up six runs in the first inning of that All-Star game. So, you know. Mike was telling everybody what he was throwing. <laughs> yeah. But, unfor- yeah. <laughs> but unfortunately, the Mets lost the World Series to the Yankees in five games because that was part of that late 90s, early 2000s Yankee dynasty. You know, you were no matter how good Piazza and the rest of the Mets were, like, you know, Bobby Valentine, who, as I told Patrick, uh, I think it was last month or a couple, or maybe it was in June, Bobby Valentine was at a, a Rocket City Trash Pandas game wearing a Trash Pandas uniform in the dugout, just chatting up with players and not really just just sitting there just watching the game, hanging out with uh, the Trash Pandas players. And I'm thinking, what in the world is he doing here? You know, <laughs> but that was when the that's when but back in 2000 uh bobby valentine was managing the mets and you know and they had like benny agbayani and all these guys you know they just had a good they had a good year 2000 was a so, good year for so the back mets. when i worked for the biscuits uh there'd be guys mm-hmm. um they called them roving coaches they'd spend oh. uh, three or four days here three or four days there bounce around with all these young guys and these prospects yeah and um they would always be wearing rays uniforms while everybody else is wearing biscuits uniforms, they they'd be in there just you know, checking in, working on things, seeing where development wise a lot of these guys were. So that's, I'm assuming he has a role like that with the Angels organization. That's my guess. I think yeah, I believe that's it. And like he also, I guess I'll broadcast Angels games too. But I guess that week they're like, hey, you know, just go to Rocket City and go, uh, go take, you know, go just go see what you can see and helps to, you know, give players advice if needed. But I, you know, the Trash Pandas did an interview with him. And I guess they asked about, like, what was his favorite part of the game or the games that he was at? And he said, I like the astronaut race. <laughs> you know, with the with the, the guys dressed up as astronauts, like as, uh, Buzz uh, Aldrin, Neil Armstrong, Sally Ryan, and Mae Jemison, you know, similar to the President's Race in um, D.C. or the Sausage Race in Milwaukee, I mean, that's the Rock City Trash Man's version of one of those races, you know. And it's really fun. I love, you know, I love watching every time I go to a game. So, so, so Bobby Valentine, he, um, he does the TV stuff with their broadcast, but he's mm-hmm. also the senior advisor to the general manager. Okay. Um, Perry Manasian, I guess is how you pronounce that. Um, so that's kind of probably why he was there. Yeah, but it was cool to see him because, like, you know, I was at the game and I looked on, I scrolled down, like, my Facebook or Instagram feed in between innings, and there was a picture, you know, the Pandas posted a picture of Bobby Valentine in a Pandas uniform. I was like, hey, good to see you at the game, Bobby. And then, like, I immediately looked down towards the uh, Trash Pandas dugout, and there he was. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, celebrity sighting. It's Bobby Valentine, <laughs> you know. But – uh and of course, you know, the next year, 2000, sorry, now we're going back to Piazza, you know, but again, this was baseball related, so it's okay, you know, to get off the subject for a little bit. But uh, um, back in 2001, of course, this, as we all know, the September 11th attacks happened, and Piazza had another iconic moment in one of the games after the 9-11 attacks. He hit a game-winning eighth-inning home run in the first professional game played in New York following the attacks. And that's his home run then was called iconic, therapeutic, and symbolic. And, um, you know, just, just 
it may help people just you know come together and just as America and you know just things are going to be okay. Things are going to be back to normal. You know, Piazza hit a home run in New York. It's going to be okay. You know, I think they played the Braves that day too. I think I have to double check on that one. But Piazza's jersey that he wore, and this game was on September 21st of 2001. The jersey that he wore for that game was purchased in April 2016 for $365,000, which was the highest price ever paid for a modern-day jersey, and is displayed on a rotating basis among the 9-11 Memorial Museum. <coughs> a rotating basis among the 9-11 Memorial Museum, City Field, and the National Baseball Hall of Fame. So those three, you know, you could, you know, if odds are you're gonna you're gonna be able to see that jersey, you know, if you go to either one of those places. I think I saw it at the Baseball Hall of Fame either when I was an intern or in one of the years that I went up and volunteered, like last year, this year, twenty twenty one. I believe I saw the Piazza jersey. I did not see it at the nine eleven museum when we went earlier this year. Okay, it's so that'd have been cool to have there. And if you haven't ever been to the 9-11 museum and you're in New York, you have to do it. It's most one of the most humbling things I've ever done. Yeah. For sure. And, and you're correct, they did play the Braves that day and they won three to two. Close game. Of course, you know, Mets and Braves are good rivalry in the NL East. But um, you know. But it was good. You know, Piazza, people have fond memories of Piazza hitting that home run. You know, immediately after 9 11, and, and you know, it's just Piazza's just Piazza can just, you know, bring up good memories or crazy memories. You know, it's just it, it's good vibes are coming from Piazza, you know. There's two <laughs> iconic moments in baseball in New York surrounding the time after 9 11. You have the George W. first pitch with the bulletproof vest still on right down the pipe, and then that home run was the two big things that really, I guess, brought that city back together in a sports sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And of course, you know, as Piazza plays as a catcher, you know, his knees are not going to be great. You know, the longer you play as a catcher, the the odd, you know, you keep going up and down, up and down, up and crouching down, going up, crouching down, going up. I mean, it's gonna it's gonna wear on your knees like any catcher. I could only imagine that over the course of a big league season, too. That's so many games. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're playing like over if you're playing over 100 games a season for sure, you know, it's it's gonna wear on you. It, either way, it's gonna find a way to wear on you. As anybody who's played the catcher position knows, I know guys you know, I played ball with in school, man, that got bum knees, and most your most games you're playing at that level is 50 or 60. Like, yeah, if that, it it really wears on you. And so to combat this, to ease the stress of his knee, of his on his deteriorating knees, he began to split time between catching and playing first base during the 2004 season. And um, and this only happened during the 2004 season because it was abandoned, at, you know, near the end of, before the end of the season because of his defensive deficiencies. He was a liability at first base. Is what they're trying to say. <laughs> yeah. Balls are going to get past him. You probably can't, you know, stretch for a ground ball very well. But, you know, it's like – but, of course, this this is 2004. There is no DH in the National League. You know, if they had DH in the National League, Piazza would have been made for that. He'd be like, I don't have to catch. I could just hit. I mean, it'd be 
fantastic, but alas, no. <laughs> It'd be an easier transition you... into today's baseball with the DH and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but um, you know, but in spite of his defensive defensive deficiencies, he has some notable defensive accomplishments. Like, for example, he caught two no-hitters during his time with the Dodgers thrown by Ramon Martinez, who's the brother of Pedro, and Hideki Nomo, I'm sorry, Hideo Nomo, you know. And, um, and of course, Nomo threw that no-hitter at Coors Field, which, as we all know, is a hitter-friendly ballpark. So, you know, to have somebody throw a no-hitter at Coors Field, uh, Coors Field was just you know remarkable because you know how because we all know how far that ball sails out of course field with a high altitude and whatnot and uh, um you know and in, in 2000 is he had a 99.997 fielding percentage where it was the highest among you know catchers that year so i mean the guy can he can play some defense despite his not being known as a good defensive guy i mean he didn't win any gold gloves but it didn't matter you know, you don't have to have a winning gold glove to be a good player, you know. <laughs> as long as you can hit well, you can, you know, you can make it to the Hall of Fame and stay in the majors for a while. Yeah, you know, run, so he, run production. Well, you'll overlook some defensive and if you look you'll overlook some defensive ineffectiveness for some run production any day. Yeah. And the guy has like and you know, Piazza has 10 silver sluggers. I mean, you know. <laughs> I mean that's that that can speak for itself, but yep. um, you know, and then also in two thousand four on Cinco de Mayo, he passed Carlton Fisk for the most home runs by a catcher with his three hundred fifty second home run. And then you know two thousand five, it was his last season in the Mets, and you know apparently everybody knew that Piazza after the season he was going to depart for free agency. And so, every, you know, it, it was widely reported that it was going to happen. And so on October 2nd, 2005, his last game as a Met, uh, Mets manager Willie Randolph elected to replace Piazza in the top of the eighth inning. With the Shea Stadium crowd giving him a standing ovation, Piazza humbly bowed to the stands and blew kisses to adoring fans, which that was great because he had such a great relationship with the Mets and the fans and Mets fans at Chase Stadium, you know, he brought them a lot of good memories and moments. And so, you know, the next season, 2006, he signed a one-year contract with the San Diego Padres. And he was, he served as their starting catcher and cleanup hitter. And, you know, he hit 283 with 22 home runs. And he helped the Padres to a division, the NL West division title. And then also in, on July 21st of 2006, he collected his 2000 career major league hit. You know, and then August 8th of that year, he played his first game at Shea Stadium after the trade, uh, since the trade, or since he leaving the Mets, I guess. He didn't get traded, he free agency. And throughout the three game series, Piazza drew frequent standing ovations for the New York fans. And it was on par with that of Tom Seaver on his return to pitch at Shea Stadium in 77 and 78 when he was pitching for the Reds. And even more telling, during that series, on August 9th, he drew a rare curtain call in the opposition park following a home run off Mets pitcher Pedro Martinez. 
Martinez <laughs> in the fourth inning. Not done I always for the day. forget Cut. about Pedro as a Met. Yeah, like after the 2004 series with the uh, Red Sox, he immediately went to the Mets. Yeah, I always forget about that. Yeah, I forget about him as a Met as well as a Philly. Mm-hmm. Oh, shit, I forgot about that, too. Yeah. All, and, of course, you know, he started his career with the Dodgers, and he played some of the Expos, too. But everybody remembers him as a Red Sox because he was I remember him as an Expo and a Red Sox. Yeah. Yeah. You know. But uh, and not done for the day, Piazza went deep off Martinez again in the sixth inning. And when the Mets ahead, four to two in the eighth and two runners aboard, Piazza hit one to the wall in center, nearly ba- nearly bashing his third home run of the day and putting the Padres ahead. So he just, you know. He, even though he was getting up there in age and he was on the opposing team, he had a uh, he he showed off for the Mets one last uh, showed off for Mets fans one last time, you know, as a, even though he was a Padre. I mean, talks to <laughs> how he was a fan favorite for him to get the reception he did. Absolutely, you know, they love Mets fans love them some Mike Piazza, as they should. And of course, the next year, he, he as a free agent, he signed with the Oakland A's. And this was his last season in the big leagues. Um, and it wasn't really anything notable about it. It was just one of them guys hanging on yeah. one more year. Kind Although, of yeah. But on July 25th that year, a fan, the, the, the A's were playing the Angels at Angel Stadium, Anaheim. A fan threw a, wild, a water ball that hit Piazza, who had homered earlier in the game. Piazza then pointed his bat in the stands at the fan. He believed through the water bottle to get the attention of security. The fan, who was identified as Roland Flores from La Puente, California, was arrested by the ballpark security against Flores. Flores was sent to 30, Flores was sentenced to 30 days in jail and three years of probation on March 27, 2008. And then on September 26 of, of that year at Fenway Park against the Red Sox, he hit his 427th and what would be his final major league career home run against uh, Red Sox rookie John Lester. You know, and so, you know, I think, and so after not being signed by any MLB team in 2008 at, for the 2008 season, he announced his retirement on May 20th that year saying, after discussing my options with my wife, family, and agent, I felt it is time to start a new chapter in my life. It has been an amazing journey. And of course, you know, 2008 was the last year the Mets played at Shea Stadium. So, you know, during the closing ceremony of Shea, you know, he received the final pitch in history of the stadium from Tom Seaver. And then uh, Piazza and Seaver officially closed Shea Stadium when they walked off together into the center field exit and closed the door on the park after waving goodbye to the capacity crowd. And then the next year when they opened City Field, <laughs> Piazza and Seaver came back and Seaver threw the very first pitch in the new city field. It, it, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, that's cool. You know, <laughs> you know, you, you, you end it with Seaver and Piazza, mm-hmm. you begin it with Seaver and Piazza. I mean, two yeah. of the most storied players in Mets history. Two of the sure. best to ever play their positions. Exactly. You know, um, and then after. After MLB ball, he got involved with some international ball. Um, as we mentioned earlier, he's Italian. Mm-hmm. So um, he played in 2006 
with the Italians in the World Baseball Classic. And then he was the Italian national baseball team's hitting coach at the 2009 and 2013 World Baseball Classics. And he was an instructor for the Italian Baseball Academy when it won back-to-back European baseball championships in 2010 and 2012. And then in, in November 2019, Piazza announced that he would manage the Italian national baseball team in the 2020 European Baseball Championship and the 2021 World Baseball Classic. But we all know what happened in 2019, so. Yeah, 1920. None of, none of this happened. <laughs> no, but, but this year's World Baseball Classic, he did manage the Italian team. I do remember that. And then this is crazy. And so in 2016, which was also the year that he got inducted in the major league in the baseball hall of fame, he purchased a majority ownership stake in the third division Italian soccer club, AC Reggiana in Reggio Emilia, Italy with an estimated investment of $3 million. His interest grew from his friendship with former Italian soccer player, Maurizio, friend zone however after two seasons of ownership and a controversial playoff loss to Robert Siena with a penalty called in the 96th minute Piazza put the team up for sale finding no buyers and faced with mounting costs including rent the club ceased operations in July 2018 in December 2018 the team declared bankruptcy for the third time in 20 years and him Piazza and his wife had feuded with Luca Vecchi which was the mayor of at the time, was the mayor of Reggio Emilia during the time as owners of the club. And so this, the Athletic, the website called The Athletic, um, did a great article about the Piazza's ownership of AC Reggiana. And it is called, the article is called The Passion of Mike Piazza, How the Midlife Crisis of a Baseball Hall of Famer Led to the Demise of a 100-Year-Old Italian Soccer Club. So Sounds harsh. <laughs> yeah. So now for the article, they interviewed Piazza and his wife. So it's okay. not like they didn't decline to be talked about it. They talked well, they, about it. It wasn't a hit piece, but right. It wasn't. Yeah. But it's if you have a subscription to the athletic like I do, I would highly recommend reading this article because it's just fascinating of what they were just in. Basically, long story short, the Piazzas were just in over their heads on trying to run a, a soccer club in another country. I mean, it was just, you know, you can make the argument that it was his midlife crisis. Cause you know, he was like in his late forties, then about to be 50, you know, I mean, just, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's like, come on, Mike, that, I just don't think that was a good idea. Man. Yeah. It didn't work out quite like uh Reynolds and McElhaney with uh, Wrexham. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, but um, yeah. So if you, if you have, if any of our listeners have a subscription to the athletic, I would highly recommend reading that article because it's just, it's fascinating. It really is. But, um, you know, so like, you know, in career stats, he played, you know, Piazza played 16 years in the majors, 16 seasons, 1,912 games, 2,127 hits and 6,911 bats for a career average of 308 which is great, along with 427 home runs, excuse me, 1,335 RBIs, and OPS on-base plus slugging percentage of .922 and on-base percentage of .377. He's one of the best hitting catchers of all time, which, you know, out of his his 427 career home runs, 396 of them were when he was playing the game as a catcher, you know, in the catcher position which is a major league record 
for the most career home runs by a catcher. So he still has that record. You know, he's the he's the all time he's the catcher with the most home runs in a career in the major league baseball. I mean, just there's only you know. eight guys in baseball history that have had 400 home runs with a 300 batting average and never striking out more than 100 times in a season. Mm-hmm. And these names that are on this list with him, everybody, their household names, everybody's going to recognize. Ted Williams, Stan Musial, Lou Gehrig, Mel Ott, Hank Aaron, Babe Ruth, Vlad Guerrero, and Chipper Jones. Mm-hmm. All Hall of Famers. And then <laughs> he's only one of three players to ever win Silver Slugger Awards, Barry Bonds and A-Rod. Yeah. And he did it without, that I can recall, any talks of him being on the juice. Yeah, I don't recall. I don't think he ever got hung up in any of that. No. When we talked about the Mitchell report, I don't believe he was named in it. Because those two guys on that list would would be Hall of Famers if their name was clean. Yeah. Because Barry Bonds might be the best hitter to ever play the game. Like, Maybe. Yeah. Now, during his playing time, Piazza had a reputation for not being great defensively. However, in recent uh, years, I guess after his uh, career, his defense has undergone a more positive reassessment in light of new defensive metrics. His pitch framing in particular ranks seventh best among all catchers going back to the first data in 1988. And then another report published in 2008 put him third among all catchers since 1948 in improving the performances of his pitchers. So, you know, his defense was overlooked during his and looked down upon during his uh, playing career, but after his career, you know, with new defensive metrics, it's gotten – he's gotten a little more respect as a defensive catcher than he did during his playing career, you know. Sometimes you got – you know, you look into – you know, kind of like wins above replacement when and all these other sabermetric stuff, looking at players who were overlooked during their playing careers for, like, Hall of Fame uh, consideration, you know. I mean, it's – it, it just amazes me how many statistics and new statistics that Major League Baseball people can come up with to try to mm-hmm. campaign for somebody to get in the Hall of Fame or what have you. You know, it's just it's really fascinating to me. Most of the time I don't understand it, but it's just fascinating. <laughs> I don't understand a lot of these new stats that he use. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm going to be brief, but off the subject. So the this year's whoever won the Spink Award, whatever they call the Spink Award now, the BBWAA uh, Career Excellence Award. Apparently, he was the guy who did this year, and I can't think of his name off the top of my head. I have to look it up. Apparently, from what I've been told, he is the gentleman who created the term quality start. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, no, don't know. No, oh, man, we used to fight for quality starts in fantasy baseball. And um, it just seemed like I, my guys would always get pulled in like a third of an inning short. And like, Dang it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it, 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 the guy's name is John Lowe. And he covered like, you know, the Dodgers and Angels and the Phillies and the Tigers during his uh, 
career. But apparently he was the guy who came up with the quality start thing. And as we discussed, if you're doing like fancy baseball, that's that's okay. But if you're doing like Cy Young Award uh votes, that's not okay. <laughs> but anyway, I'm I'm getting back to it's the a good outside. metric. It's a good metric to say you had a good game and you left your team with a chance to win. Yeah. Like I tell I tell our quality start really. What is it? Three runs or less and more than seven innings? Yeah. You know, something like that. Is it that and you strike out a good number of guys? You it's know. a fantasy baseball metric, is what it is. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, but I, I but I just wanted to say that because we're talking about crazy statistics and whatnot. And I was like, oh, I had to mention this because I just found it fascinating, you know. Anyway, so and of course, like, you know, his peers, like uh former Mets teammate and fellow Hall of Famer, Tom Glavin. He called Piazza a first ballot Hall of Famer, certainly with the best, certainly the best hitting catcher of our era, and arguably the best hitting catcher of all, all time. And um, you know, and he told reporters in 2010 that if he got into the Hall of Fame, he would like to go, he'd like to be inducted as a Met for whom he played seven plus seasons. And um, you know, he managed the in 2011, he managed the USA team in the 2011 Futures game, wearing a Mets cap to the event. So, um, his, I guess his first year on ballot was 2013 for Hall of Fame. He failed to get elected. He received only 57.8% of the vote, and he fell short of the 75 qualifying votes. 2013 was the year that only Veterans Committee guys got in the got elected to the Hall, and none and nobody on the ballot of modern players got in. That was a hard to believe, year. man. Yeah. And um, Piazza stated that he would address the performance enhancing drug and steroids rumors in his book, Long Shot. So I guess because he felt that maybe playing during the steroid era, you know, probably hurt his chances to get in 2013 to deny him to become a first balloter. That's probably his, uh, that's probably how what he thought of what happened and why he didn't get in that first year. And then, you know, his second appearance the next year, he received 62.2%. And then 2015, he received 69.9%. But then finally, in 2016, he was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame, receiving 83% of the vote. The fact he so, wasn't a first ballot guy just baffles me. Yeah, I'm like, how? I mean, like, you know, how do you not elect a guy? I mean, like, how many people in that first ballot 2013 thought, yeah, I just don't think you should get in. I'm like, who, I mean, well, that's well, a and you got a lot of these sports writers that you're gatekeepers, man. And I don't agree with their opinions of a lot of things. Yeah. Like maybe they felt like maybe they held some grudges against them, but it's like, it, it wasn't like some players who feuded with the media. I mean, like, as far as I know, I don't think he ever had like a big feud with like the New York media or, the LA media, because if he did, he would have been eaten live, as we all know. You Especially know, in those markets, he would not. Yeah, he would not have thrived in LA or New York. You know, if if the you know if he didn't have great relations with the media as well as being a great player, you know, he would not have succeeded like he did if he didn't have that. But you know, writers vote in mysterious ways, and some people publish their ballots, some people don't. Some people if, sell their ballots. Some people sell their ballots. And I'm like, if I had that choice, I'm not telling anybody who I'm voting. 
because I do not want that, you know, debate of like, why didn't you vote for this guy or why did you vote for that guy? I don't want to hear that if I'm like that. But um, are so, these guys that won't vote for somebody because they know they're going to get in and they don't think so anybody deserves to be unanimous? Like, yeah, I mean, it's just it's, what, are we, what are we doing, man? Yeah, of course, when he got so when he got done in 2016. This is what I found interesting because I follow this guy named Eddie Trunk on uh, Instagram and he's like a radio DJ He's for like rock and roll and stuff like that. He hosted that metal show on VH1. Mike Piazza invited Eddie Trunk as his personal guest for the induction ceremony. So Eddie Trunk got to sit with like Mike Piazza's family in the special family section during the induction ceremony. I'm like, how cool is that? You know, it's just like one of those things that you didn't, like, I wouldn't think that like Mike Piazza and uh, Eddie Trunk would cross paths, but like they're friends and they, Eddie, you know, Mike's like, you want to come to the induction ceremony? Here you go. You know? Maybe Mike's into metal. <laughs> he probably is, you know, he's probably into metal. I mean, that's, you know, he, and of course, you know, Eddie's based out of like New York, New Jersey. So, you know, I mean, you know, they could have crossed paths somewhere around there. But that's just really cool. You know, it's just like one of like two people that you wouldn't think like would like interact or be friends. It's cool. It's cool to find friendships like that. Like, you know, if like somewhat or famous or somewhat famous people like just know each other and hang out and get invited to induction ceremonies. I mean, yeah, it's just, it, it's unique to me anyway, you know. But um, and of course the Mets retired his number in 2016. Which he wore number 31 for the Mets. So he got retired on July 30th, 2016. And of course, three years late, three years earlier in 2013, he was inducted to the Mets Hall of Fame. You know. And um, in pop culture, this is interesting. In the movie, the 2019 film Spider-Man Far From Home, a triangular pennant bearing Piazza's surname was and uniform number in the back was in the background of character Peter Parker's bedroom in the film and then a a the rock band bell and sebastian wrote a song called piazza new york catcher and you know piazza's autobiography the long shot was released in 2013 i mean so like you know i mean he's got some pop culture references too you know even if you don't follow baseball you know if you're a fan of the, the spider-man film or bell and sebastian you know who mike piazza is you know <laughs> Which not a lot of, I mean, like lots of, even like in older days, baseball players get eulogized in like popular films and popular, um, or, uh, popular uh, songs and whatnot. But it's like, it's still cool that you know, I still think it's cool that you you know people write songs about you or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just it's just a cool feeling, even if you may or may not care for the band that did it. That's still cool that been recognized like that. You know, because <laughs> not everybody has a song for them. You know right um he's also done some tv and acting work uh, he appeared in the movie two weeks notice and acted in various tv shows and commercials during the 94 95 mlb strike he and a handful of other striking players appeared as themselves in a, a 1994 episode of married with children mm -hmm. um in 2013 he debuted with the miami city ballet saying a few lines in the role of a hitman in the troops production of slaughter on 10th avenue um, he wants to increase the representation of ballet among sports fans as a result of his daughter's attendance at a ballet school. And then this year, he appeared on the Fox Reality uh, Challenge Series Special Forces World's Toughest Tests. Oh, that's interesting. 
I would love to see how he did in that. <laughs> you know. And of course he's married uh to a former Playboy playmate, Alicia Rocker or Richter, excuse me, Alicia Richter since 2005. And Eddie Trunk was a guest at that at the wedding too. So he's there with um uh, Al Leiter and John Franco and Hunter Rodriguez and Eric Caros. I mean, just that's a heck of a wedding, man, like in Miami. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, he has um he has three kids, uh, two daughters and a son. And okay, well, here we go. He's a big fan of heavy metal, so that's why it's probably how he knows Trunk, you know. And he's featured on the album Stronger Than Death by Black Label Society. What did he do? Like, like what did, that that just sounds like what was he doing? Like what? his Zach Wilde's son, Hendrix, uh Godfather. Okay. So apparently he does Mike Piazza does death growls on the song Stronger Than Death. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, here, you know, it's too in this and the album came out in 2000, March of 2000. So the same year as the Mets go to the World Series. You know, you do death Piazza instead of staring at Clemens, Piazza should have done a death growl at Clemens after he if he got thrown the bat by Clemens. That's what he should have done. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, Piazza's just an interesting man. And, of course, he often co-hosts Eddie Trunk's Friday Night Rock show on WAQX in New York City, and he was featured as the primary guest on an episode of That Metal Show. He's also an accomplished drummer and has performed on stage with various bands. And he's a devout Roman Catholic, which, you know, makes sense. You know, his mother was Catholic. And he's featured in a DVD documentary called Champions of Faith, which explores the intersection of Catholic religious faith and sports. And he appeared in the follow-up champions of fate bases of life. He's also avidly involved in the national Italian American sports hall of fame, Chicago. And, uh, you know, when he played with the Mets, he resided, he was a resident of Chris kill, New Jersey, and he had a penthouse on 18th street, in New York city. Like you know, I mean, what baseball players would do, you know, you get a penthouse. You have the, you're making that type of money, you're gonna get a penthouse. You know, he seems to have stayed busy. Yeah, I mean, he's just—he's he, spotlight. He's just doing things. I mean, Piazza's just an interesting guy. You know, he's just an interesting guy. So that's all I really have to say about Mike. I mean, do you have anything else, Dan? I mean, I don't think there's much to add. Covered it no. all. He's just a very – he was a great player. Obviously, he's in the Hall of Fame. A great hitting catcher. Arguably, probably the best hitting catcher, you know, that the game's ever seen. Certainly in our generation, up there with Joe Maurer, for sure, you know. Especially uh, as far as power numbers go. Yeah, power numbers, you know. And then just the interesting off-the-field stuff, like owning a uh, soccer team in Italy and running into the ground and – being a heavy metal fan and hanging out with Eddie Trunk and all these guys. I mean, like just, you know, Mike Piazza is just a fascinating man for sure. You know, it'd be cool to meet Mike Piazza. Yeah. Maybe not ask him for an autograph, but you know, just it'd be cool to meet him, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so he seems to have gotten the most out of uh, life. Yeah. And that's what, and that's like a goal that anybody should have. Just make the most out of your life and, have fun and do things, whether it be, 
maybe get out of your comfort zone somewhat, you know, just, just do cool things and make your life more interesting than it is. You know, that's why I went to Cooperstown uh, a couple weeks ago and did the, the volunteer, the baseball football ceremony again, you know I mean? Or just, you know, just do, just do cool things to make your life less mundane. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, this was awesome. You know, It'd be cool if we can get him on the podcast and we can talk more about his career, but you know, that's gonna be a long shot. <laughs> maybe maybe one day we'll have that kind of clout. Yeah. And he may be like, you know, okay, we can go on the podcast, but, but please do not talk about my time owning the soccer team. Do, do not mention it. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound like that went well. <laughs> yeah. But no, I think that uh I'm gonna have to go listen to that song now, too. Yeah, so we can hear the deaf growls. <laughs> um Oh, I've listened to a good bit of metal. I've probably heard it. <laughs> I just didn't know better. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's it for Mike Piazza. Yeah. Um, until next time. Great episode as always. I'm, I'm Patrick DeVault. And I'm Matthew Carter. I'll have a good one. Have a good day. The barrel of the bat comes back at Roger Clemens, and he fires the bat back toward Piazza, who is going down the first baseline. That is all Roger Clemens there. A moment started by, created by Clemens. And thankfully, not much more on the field than these two benches emptying and the players now in a mode of standing around and trying to sort out what just happened. That was surprising. Joe, there were a lot of people who defended Roger Clemens when he hit Mike Piazza in the head. I was one of them. In my view right now, Roger Clemens is dead wrong. You can't take up the better part of the bat, the fat part of the bat, and fire it into foul territory near Piazza. Obviously, Piazza didn't mean to do that. My gosh, that's a blatant act. Foolish, foolish. Man, that is, I'll tell you, that is, that is a blatant act right there. Piazza has every right to be upset. Wow. So Roger Clemens, in essence, throws a jagged, a pointed, oh, sharp piece of wood that ends up, what, two feet away from Mike Piazza? Yeah. Unfortunately, Piazza was looking toward Clemens when the bat was thrown over into foul territory. He had Mike had his head down. Running down a first baseline, he may have run right into that barrel of the bat. One ball, two strikes. Defensive swing, and it's Vizcaino to his left, and a perfect first inning for Clemens.